how you use them. Welcome to the BizTalk Podcast. As usual, I'm here with Kai Lode, and we're here with Kellyanne, the Swiss Army Knife, pulling stats and charts while we talk. Boy, a lot we're going to do. In this, uh, in this episode of the podcast, we're going to cover a bunch of stats here, find little things, what it means to you, some very interesting stuff out there so you see how the world is changing and where you may find application for your company. And then we're going to go in and do a Quick BizDoc podcast. The podcasts are back. The board is back. It's a new digital version of the board. And we're going to go into Uber announces that finally, 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 profitability. Amazing stuff. And cash flow positive. So we'll get that in the case study segment. But now, roll right into these. The first, the first we have here, Apple's road to $3 trillion. You know, I've talked about this before, uh, how it took like 27 years or something. I don't even remember if that's it or 25 and a half for Apple to get to two trillion in market cap. And then like a year and a half later, whoop, that's three trillion in market cap. And I found a very interesting bit of stat that shows the aggressive Nick climb of that. And if we could pop that up and take a look at it, Apple's road to three trillion. Now you take a look, you would think now, oh, it, it probably was going along and then went crazy when um, Apple introduced the iPhone. Well, not really. Take a look at this. Steve Jobs comes back and he makes those colorful. Remember the iMacs? They were colorful little boxes. You could get one in blue or pink or yellow, all the different color on the back. He starts that, he walks out on stage, pulls out an envelope, the iPad Air, and then look at this, launch of the iPod 01, launch of the iPhone 07, launch of the iPad 11. Look at that, even then the Apple Watch iPads, and then what the hell happened in 2018? We run the $2 billion market cap, and then we have a little COVID burp there at the top, but now we're at $3 trillion. I just wanna take a look at that and show you that is the impact of printing money, folks. Uh, Apple is a great company with great products and everything, but when you, you print trillions of dollars of money, you can take two trillion to three trillion really, really quick. But I thought that was a helpful visual representation of how the hell did Apple get three trillion dollars? Exactly. I think uh, the only other thing I'm seeing here that we're not seeing on the chart actually, which is pretty interesting, is the fact that the software and the ecosystem that they've put in place. So I think that's definitely been a tremendous amount of retention of just keeping people there to drive up the lifetime value. Um, and it's been a games platform. The iPhone's been a big games platform. Oh, with the, with the App Store as well, yeah, for sure. No doubt about that. Um, moving on to the second stat of the week here, we have uh, a chart, if they want to pop that up, where we look at how COVID-led gaming um, and game developers let us know who who's better and what's more. So as we can see here is a big increase in gaming time for young men. So pre-COVID in 2019, it was an average of 1.08 hours, and that went up to 1.82, which is a stark increase in a very short amount of time. So I think that obviously, um, no lateral, no, the isolation drives this up of people who now, the only way to socialize is to communicate via either online or something like that, and games is definitely an outlet where they've allowed for that. Uh, and the other part I think is gonna be interesting to see is where this comes down now that the COVID's over, whether it stays up there as a habit or if it kind of drops off. What are your thoughts, Tom? I think game publishers probably know people's behavior better than most psychologists. Uh, and I think it's no surprise when you lock everybody indoors, you gave the gaming industry an opportunity to push new titles and do things. And 
now people are almost two hours a day, young men almost two hours a day versus a little over one hour a day. And um, some people say that's kind of bad and isolationist. We can deal with that another time. But what's really interesting is it, is it went up and it stayed up. Um, right, insert your favorite young horny man joke there. But um, <laughs> um, moving on, moving on. You know what's interesting? That is a standard data set. And there's also what's called lagging data sets. What a lagging data set may be, it rained and then you have how much corn was actually harvested. And those are two valid stats where you create lagging data. And I want to show you something here because this is a lagging data set that just shows how slow America was to stop smoking. Check this out. We popped this up. Cigarettes sold per adults per day. So per adult per day among smokers. And then the red line, which is lung cancer death rate. So in other words, lung cancer death rate trailed it. So there were still a lot of people smoking, even as that red line was rising where people knew it. That's called a lagging indicator. And on lagging indicators, sometimes people choose not to believe them. Why are you bringing this up, Biz Doc? Because for your company, when you start correlating data sets, and you should have business analysts or people on your team doing that, when you start to see direct correlation and you start to see something, don't wait till the cancer deaths peak, if you will. Look at it and say, hey, there's some correlation here. What's going on? What are our customers doing? What are we doing? What are we not doing? What's happening with web traffic? Get curious. And so with lagging indicators, as soon as you see a correlation, get curious and find answers for your company. Kind of yeah. crazy. No, for sure. And and I think that the other part on the on the lagging indicators is a lot of people look at the lagging indicators as input measures as opposed to kind of the results. You can control how much input you put, cold calls, reaching out, Very this, fine. that, and the other, but you can't necessarily control the lagging measures of like how many people show up and stuff like that. Um, but moving on in, in, into something else. Something that is, that is not lagging. It's kicking and, a little butt. Yeah, and it's killing it as well. If they want to bring up the chart here in terms of shares, of total TV consumption. As we can see, streaming has been on the rise and pretty much everything else is falling off here. And looking at this, I'm not surprised. Honestly, I would have thought it's more just based off of how many people consume TV in a different way as opposed to the cable of watching it live with the commercials and everything compared to streaming and really being able to watch it at your convenience, being able to binge watch and kind of control the consumption in the direction you'd like to. What are your thoughts on this, Tom? Well, my thoughts on this, I've, I've been looking at this chart and I looked it up for a while. I'm trying to find out what that little dip in streaming was that happened it, it, from the end of 22 to early 23, but now it's popping back up again. Because you would think, I understand why the lines cross there between cable and streaming during COVID. People are looking on their phones, more people were at home. If you got everybody at home watching, they probably don't watch the same thing on cable. No, I'm gonna go binge on Netflix on the back porch, but wear a damn mask, okay, you know, and everything that happened there. And then when it came back, now you've got the streaming, you know, doing so well and there's a little dip. But the point is here on this, streaming is here to stay and it is kicking cables butt and there's the fact. So if you're thinking about advertising, you're thinking about marketing for your business, maybe more traditional, what you spend on streaming is harder to contemplate what you want to do, but you got to get some digital media experts on your team to decide what you're going to do because you need to be buying streaming. You need to be buying less of cable and less of broadcast. The mindset has to change if you're going to optimize your marketing spend if you're in a business where that's where you're reaching consumers is through 
video, whether it's broadcast TV, which is over the air, outdoor or digital, and cable and streaming. Exactly, and I think uh, typically streaming was cheaper than cable, but uh, that might have changed, changed around now that the uh, streaming different platforms have increased. Yeah, this next one's very important. Let's pop this up. Now, we're going to have to take a little time to digest this. Let's do the easy part. The gray bar on the right, that's the average cable price in the U.S., $83.35 to get cable into your home. Now, remember, that also includes probably some broadband delivery in that, like a basic pack. The big broadband, I think, is like $60, in other words, getting Internet service into your house. But take a look at this. By the time you figure out, and check this out, and I'll go really, really fast. They paid $19.99 for Disney, $15.49 for Netflix, $6.99 for Apple TV, $15.99 for HBO Max because you can't get enough movies just on Netflix, $14.99 for Prime Video because you can't get enough movies apparently on Netflix and HBO Max, so you go to Amazon too. Then Peacock, $11.99 because certain sports things and certain motorsports things are only available on Peacock, so you got to get Peacock because you can't get everything from, from Hulu and Disney Plus, so you pay another $11.99 there. Then $11.99 for Paramount. You don't quite know why you got Paramount, but there's a couple shows on there. And then Discovery Plus because you want to have Shark week at $6.99 and all of a sudden you're spending $104.42 on streaming when you were spending $83 and by the way add to the $104.32 on streaming $65 national average for fast broadband to your home so that suddenly gets you up to $170 it happened at the BizDocs house and the BizDocs said stop you know first of all we didn't get HBO Max in the first place because there were things on there I didn't want didn't need don't care for my daughters to be watching but we did have disney espn plus and hulu pack and we have netflix and we have a little apple tv for things there's some shows in there that we like uh but beyond that you know that's about it and so and then we put the 60 dollars on there so we keep our total spend simply because we're trying to be efficient i could just say yes to everything and everything would be available on a connected tv my daughter's just sitting there vegging out doing that but i don't want them vegging out i want them to watch documentaries studying or do other things and so even though i could afford the world i don't pay for it all i have is a few things that i that that are there along with the broadband and we keep it well under 200 dollars a month for broadband plus the streaming services that we use. Uh, and what I didn't see in here is we have Spotify family for music and mm -hmm. I can put controls on there. So one of my daughters, you know, can't listen to songs that maybe have things going on that don't want her to see or podcasts uh, above a certain rating level that I, I don't think are, you know, helpful. Um, suitable, yeah. Yep, suitable. I so I just want to put the gate there so you can't do it. But we point is we keep it under 200 bucks a month, which is $2,400 a year, which if you're making $48,000 a year, you just spend 5% yeah, of your income on entertainment. Entertainment. Yeah, no, for sure. I think to push back a little bit, I think that pe most people typically have Wi-Fi already, so I wouldn't necessarily add that on the cost. And one of the benefits of using the streaming platforms versus Wi-Fi onto a TV? No, you, wi you can wi do Wi-Fi on, on your the, phone. Yeah, but you can connect the, to the TV as well, no? Well, how do you get the internet in your house? You gotta pay about 60, 65 bucks is what most people pay for fast internet to get in their house, and then it's Wi-Fi around the house, Yeah. but you gotta get that to your main TV somehow. You can have that without broadband though, no? I haven't owned a TV in years, so I don't know. I just watch on my computer. Uh, but, but to continue as well. Aha! There we go. That's the, the youth. Um, the man without two kids, four TVs, and a wife who's trying to find <laughs> golf 24 hours a day. Yeah, got to watch out. Got to watch out. But I'll I think, be quiet now. I'll be I think, here. I think you have choice, though, because uh, here with cable TV, typically it's a package, and you're paying for 
the four channels you want and the 100 and what is that 85 channels you don't want but with the different uh, platforms you can pick and choose and then as competition is depending on what they have or don't have you can move from one to the other so it's not like you need to have all of them on that end but I'll keep moving forward here it's uh well you else. know what i was teaching a little bit and i take that back and i apologize you're giving me the single person's perspective of what you can do on a laptop with a connected phone and these nearly unlimited data plans mm -hmm. that's a very very valid point you made you don't need to pay for broadband at your house no but as you will find out at some point once you have a couple tvs and you want to watch a pay-per-view boxing and high def mm -hmm. you know so you're, you're going to be paying for the broadband at your house. I'll save the money on streaming services for now to be able to afford that later on. Well, there's so. other forms of entertainment. I found this one to be very interesting. Exactly. They want to bring up the last chart for the stat here. Um, this we're looking at change in personal consumption spending. So, Tom, if you kind of want to walk us through this, this is quite, two quite different graphs. So admissions to spectator amusements that's disneyland water parks not just disneyland Universal, and not just big destination yeah. things you go sea worlds in san antonio and san diego so all of those type of things where it's a spectator amusement you're going to and you can see during covid wham you know we were told you know with you know with some heavy german accent you must wear a mask and you may not go to disneyland mm -hmm. you know and we were kept in, you know, kind of at bay like that, you know, and I, I, I say German because usually, you know, that's a, you know, you never want to meet a German cop. You can't negotiate with a German cop on a speeding ticket. You know what I mean? Um, too much logic and they're just going to push it. But my point is there, we were all told with great force and emphasis that that couldn't go to amusement parks. So you have this spike down. But look how much is recovered. Air travel is recovered. Yep. Restaurants have mostly recovered. Pretty much. But they're just now getting into 2023 here. Yeah. Um, total personal consumer spending is up 55% now since 02. And it was only a small little bounce in there. And uh, spectator amusements, um, the growth rate is just now coming back, which means people, I mean, forget about the Florida debate and all the fight that the governor there had with Disney. People are just now getting back to amusement parks. No, um, which is which is which great. I think it's because with inflation and everything, that usually involves travel. Yes, travel. There's a lot of hidden costs, and also I think the other part of it too is that um, it's it's not only what you spend on the $200 ticket, like you're saying. It's then the the food in the park. You're spending the parking is typically an arm and a leg, and then getting there, and then accommodations if you're staying for over an extended stay of a couple of days or something like that. And then on the flip side, which is sort of more concerning is that the amusement parks have a very high overhead. They have a lot of staff. You're talking real estate, you're talking maintenance and just maintaining it. So to see that they've worked the way they have and made as little money as they have the last Sweaty few years. Sweaty guy in a Mickey Mouse costume. Yeah, they can't be, uh, their margins can't be looking too good trying to catch up for where it was previously. Exactly. All right, that's the stats this week. I hope that was news you can use. You can apply some things. We give you a view of what's going on in America. And now I'm gonna go find my board and we're gonna be right back with the case study on Uber's run to profitability. Yes, sir. All right, I found my board. Look at this, it's a digital version of the board, the familiar BizDoc board, and let's dive in. We talked about Uber. Uber made an announcement this week that they were finally profitable. Fantastic. Well, let's, let's walk through that. I want to show you how they became profitable because it's been 14 years we've been all watching Uber and the trials and tribulations and competing with Lyft and Uber Eats and Uber Freight and what's going on. And we had that uh, 
<clears throat> Travis Kalanick was one of the founders. Garrett Camp was the other. Kalanick, board and investors, big problems, new CEO there. Let's walk through really, really quick so that we can get into how did they become profitable? So first of all, we have now a new CEO. And the new CEO that's been there for, actually I shouldn't say new CEO, he's been there a few years now, this is Dara, and he announced that, well, we are finally cash flow positive, but we're also generating free cash flow. It was over a billion dollars of free cash flow generated in a quarter. All of that is great news for Uber that has been living life historically with a ton of losses. For those of you that maybe didn't see the early case studies, and we're gonna, Kelly's gonna put the links to my earlier BizDoc case studies in the, in the comment section so you can go check those out. So, Uber was founded in 2009. That's right, it's been 15 freaking years. Can you believe that? Since it was founded, we've been using it. And this is Miguel the way here. Total funding, $25 billion from venture capital, most notably Benchmark Capital. And there is a Showtime special called Super Pumped that also portrayed Bill Gurley one of the early investors and everything he went through supporting the company and then managing the uh, transition from Travis Kalanick, who was the CEO at that time. Then the IPO. The IPO <clears throat> was May 2019, so only about four years ago, four years and a couple months. They raised $8 billion that day at a valuation of $82 billion. So let's keep those numbers in mind as we step through and see where they are today. So. We start here, and you can see right there, that was the $82 billion. And you see they went through a big spike here, and then we go on a roller coaster ride, and all of a sudden, see there at the end, they're back up to a market cap of $92.9 billion. Hey, that's great. So that means there's been a little bit of a comeback. And the comeback loves a good story, and that's what we're about to hear about. So you can see they had the big spike in the middle, and we'll be able to tell what that's all about in a second. But finally, if you just take a look at Tale of Two Cities, you look where the party started right here and where the party is right here. And I'll stand in the middle and point out those two data points aren't really that far apart on that chart. So <clears throat> $92 billion. But it's a much healthier, bigger uh, stronger valuation today than it was at the IPO. So let's go take a look. This is total revenue for Uber. And you can see starts all the way down here, $3.84 billion in 16, 8 in 17, 11 to 7, and then 14. Now let's take a look. Let me hide these big bars. Don't look here. And just look here. Look at that. What a nice progression that is. They went public right here. So you see that? That's all people could see. They couldn't see these bars, you know, all this other stuff at that time. So you can see everybody's like, wow, look at Uber. Look at this going. Boy, they're going to go public. Boy, and look at that growth. Well, guess what? That was a very true story. And they go public May of this year, right there. And then what happens? Well, then what happens is um, May of 2019, 2020, we have COVID. Ah. So we're told to be home and wear a mask and don't go anywhere. And guess what? So we didn't take an Uber anywhere. And then we suddenly come back. But coming back, there's coming back. But look at 2022, $31 billion in revenue up from 17. That's a big bounce back in growth. Well, now you kind of see maybe the growth was helping fueling the final, finally running to profitability. Well, net losses. Now these bars go the other way. 
every bar that goes down is a loss. So you can see they started out with some losses, they go public, a big loss in 2020, partially led to no revenue from being, people being driven around, and they also sold some business units that weren't very, very profitable, kind of on a stock swap, one of them was for $4 billion, but also meant they didn't have to have the loss from that business anymore. And finally, 2022, $9 billion loss fueling the growth, but suddenly in 2023, we get free cash flow and operating profit. So now you can see what was happening here. You had that big jump up and then you had COVID driving it down and now a comeback with far more discipline. Now this chart makes a little more sense, doesn't it? Okay, let's look at segment revenue. This I really, really like. You take a look at the black line here, that's Uber. When we come out of COVID, whoosh, heading up. Uber Eats during COVID comes up and it flattens out after COVID. Why? Because Uber Eats was delivering stuff to us after COVID like all the time. And now the growth isn't nearly as dramatic, but it's still growing because we can go to the restaurants ourselves now. We don't have to sit out there in one of those parking spaces that says, pick up parking spaces, please wait here. Where we're actually going in to sit down and, and, and dine. And then at the bottom, take a look at that. Nobody talks about this because on the consumer side, we don't hear about it much. That's Uber Freight. And if you look over here, Freight Eats Uber. That's not a sentence, but um, see that? So now there are three business units in Uber, each generating more than $6 billion. As a matter of fact, um, uh, regular Uber generates over twice that, $14 billion. There you have it, and you see what's going on here, a lot of discipline. We move from the segment revenue onto Uber Eats. Now I'm gonna show you something here. I love this chart. This is a 19, 20, 21, 22, so that you can see what's happening to the losses. Look at the revenue Uber Eats is generating, and look how the loss goes down up goes over here. I should really have this one here in green. Now they're making a profit. Uber Eats is actually making, pot, not, not maybe a full profit, but positive EBITDA. So Uber Eats is not dragging it down. And oh, Uber Freight, zero. Seven billion dollars in revenue and zero EBITDA, which also means zero negative. So now freight is doing well. Get it? You see what's going on here? So what did Uber do and what's the lesson for you and me? How did they get here? Well, they started focusing on their core, Uber plus Eats plus Freight. And the three business, again, each over $6 billion in revenue. Then they restructured the core business. They announced layoffs earlier this year in 2023, just like everybody else did, but not as many as other tech companies. They only laid off about 3 4%, I believe it was. But Dara, the CEO, was pushing hard on restructuring and also he divested businesses that didn't work. Specifically, they sold for about a $4 billion stock swap, a, a division that just wasn't working. And so that allows you to pick up $4 billion of somebody else's stock that could be valued for another day, but any losses on that business are no longer hitting your financial statements. Then, lastly, strong performance. In the last earnings report where they announced this wonderful operating profit, 74% of rideshare. Now, how are they gonna keep growing from that? Interesting. If you already have 74%, your, 
you're really whooping up on lift. And there's only so much additional whooping you're going to be able to do in the market. But nonetheless, you grew 26% in a quarter through freight, through Eats, and Uber. So Uber is coming up to, I think, to more of a flattening of the growth curve because more of us can use it, but they already have 74% of the ride share right now. That's pretty amazing. So you can see what happened. And when you put all these things together, guess what you get? Operating profit. And putting that together with a billion dollars of free cash flow in the quarter, Uber, after 14 years under new management, new CEO, who has been driving this for about four years now, I think, give or take, Dara's been CEO, and here we are. <clears throat> and that, my friend, is a quick recap of how Uber, in the most recent you know, incarnation, got itself to operating cash flow. I want to take you over real quick. Want to learn more? Look at the first case study, part one, the original case study. Kellyanne's going to put the link here in the comments. Then case study part two, there's Travis Kalanick and Better Days when he was running Uber. And then there, right here, that is the uh, logo for Super Pump that you can find on Showtime. I don't, we don't make an affiliate fee or anything. I'm just commenting that that was a good um, dra dramatized, dramatized, um, you know, documentary, kind of documentary, kind of drama based on the trials and tribulations and the birth and the growth of Uber and what led to the exit of the CEO where Dara has come in and is driving the company very, very well. That is the Uber case study, and we are glad to bring this to you. <clears throat> and I appreciate the fact that we now have the digital board. So BizDoc case studies are back now on the digital board. Let's get back and wrap it up. Boy, I love that. I love doing the case studies because I love bringing information to you that I hope you can use for your company. And the story of Uber, and I hope those links to my earlier case studies and to that Showtime series gives you the full story. It's a great way to just look at it and say, it's something big and public and complicated, yet I can find things for my company. And speaking of finding things for your company, we have the Vault Conference coming up, brought to you by Patrick Bet David and Valuetainment down in Hollywood, Florida, which is right around the corner from the Fort Lauderdale Airport, basically Greater Fort Lauderdale, at the Diplomat Hotel out on the beach. And what will be there is a series of leaders and Patrick doing trainings, educations, case studies, all kinds of things where you can learn and apply things for your company. If you're not planning to be there, think about it. You can go to valuetainment.com website or Kellyanne, what is the website for the vault? TheVaultConference.com. TheVaultConference.com. And you see these people here. Behind me, you see Tom Brady, you see Mike Tyson, Will Gadara. Tom Brady will be there talking about how to win championships with different mix of players. Players leave, players come in. Hey, that's like you and me, where we lose an employee and have to hire a new key employee. Mike Tyson going to talk about strategy before getting into a fight. They should be entertaining speakers for you, but also give you mindset tips that will be very helpful to you running your business. The Vault Conference. Please be there. Love to see you there. And until next time from the BizDoc Podcast, I'm Tom Ells with the BizDoc saying, I hope I left you better than I found you.